0: And that's what we're talking about in uh, Romans is those mercies that are anew. Last week, however, we dealt with in Romans chapter 9, which you can begin to turn there. Verse 13 that says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. How in the world... Do we reconcile that with with mercies, and certainly mercies anew? The idea of him him hating Esau according to the Scripture. One thing I I cautioned us of uh, last week was that we we not look at, uh, whenever it talks about Uh, the characteristics of God, and in particular, uh, this characteristic, don't think of his hate as being the same as what it would be with our hate. Certainly because, for the most part, if not all the time, if we have hatred, there is sin involved. And that is never ever the case when it comes to God. And so what we, what we see is that uh, in that passage, and we're going to get to the passage we're getting to today, which uh, we're going to pick up with verse thir- uh, 13 we're talking about, and then 14. But the contra- there's a contrast between him showing mercy... And they're being hatred. And so what he's saying is, this, this one, Jacob, who I loved, will see I'm showing mercy to. I'm, I'm not holding him accountable for the sins in his life, Esau I am. Now that's still hard for people. It's hard for us to to talk and think in those terms. The issue is what, in theological terms, is called reprobation. The technical definition of reprobation is rejection by God. Now, here's the issue, and please don't walk out before we get to the message itself. (laughs) Here's the issue. We hear about God hating Esau, loving Jacob, hardening the heart of Pharaoh while Moses finds mercy. How do those fit together and how do they fit with the God that we know and that we have sung of his his amazing love and his amazing mercy? So many find this disturbing, hard-to-believe. And that's exactly why Paul asks questions that people will ask when they are confronted by that kind of a statement about God. Now let's pick up with verse 13 again, which we ended with last week. And I will just say if you're visiting with us, we uh, typically go straight through books of the Bible and uh, one of the reasons for that is because it, it causes us to deal with all of the issues that God saw fit to reveal and not to just skip over the difficult ones Or ones that make people uncomfortable. But as we go straight through books, we're seeking to be faithful to that which he saw fit to preserve for his people down through the centuries, which includes this one. Verse 13 of Romans 9, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. And by the way, this passage, last week's and this week, James Montgomery Boyce says, uh, and he was one of the great preachers and expositors in the 20th century, he says, this is the most difficult portion in all of Scripture. So we really must pray. Let's bow. So if... What Boyce says is true. Who could explain this? Who could deal with this? Who could begin to grasp this? None of us. Except by your Holy Spirit. And so... I ask, we ask, that he would be our teacher today. Open our hearts, open our minds to grasp concepts that perhaps we've we've never grasped before. To enlighten our hearts, to see how these difficult things fit with your love and your mercy And we ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So if you uh, look at the title of the sermon or the outline, what you see is that question is God unfair. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. First, I want to comment on on that point in my outline in the title. When people object to the doctrine of election as it's presented in the Scripture, they don't usually ask it the way Paul does. Instead, the typical way, at least the way that I've heard it throughout uh, my ministry is, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. And that was my first reaction when I was exposed to these doctrines, before I ever saw anything in Scripture about it, when it was explained to me many years ago. It's exactly my response. Well, how, how can that be fair? Fair. So let's, let's start with what was my question and what are most people's questions, and that is about fairness. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to understand that fairness is a human doctrine. He doesn't use that term, and there's a reason. Here's why I say it's a, a human doctrine. When I was a a little boy, that was back in the day where kids played outdoors. (laughs) Some of you are too young to remember that, I understand. And uh, kids would play with other kids in the neighborhood. And uh, we were out there every day. And virtually every day, at some point, things broke down. And when I say they broke down, there was an argument over something. And especially if there were teams or cowboys and Native Americans (laughs) were playing against each other, that kind of a thing. Somebody would shout, That's not fair. And somebody on the other side would say, Yes, it is. (laughs) And that was it. That's all that you could do. One yelled, It's not, it is, it's not, it is. You'd split up, and then the next day you were out playing again. You see the problem with that? Fairness is in our own mind, and it's a sliding scale. And so, that's why, if we're thinking that's not fair, let's change it to the actual biblical question, and that is, is it just? Because fairness, we will never be able to answer. The right question, when it comes to God, is not what is fair, but what is just. And Paul's answer to Is there injustice on God's part? is by no means. We've dealt with that phrase before. The old King James said, God forbid. No way. It's impossible, is the answer. Now, because God is God and we are not, that's really all that needed to be said. He could have stopped there. He didn't. But why go on? If it is impossible for God to do something unjust, then we have to accept that and move on. Martin Luther said, why then should man complain that God acts unjustly when this is impossible? Or could it be possible that God is not God? His point is, it can't be, if God is God, then there, it's not going to be unjust. So he didn't have to explain anything, but he does. He goes on and he gives uh, some illustrations that they would understand of Moses and Pharaoh, verse 15, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. And they would have known this account inside and out. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on uh, human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So there again, it's saying it can't be about works. Works are not sufficient. He has established that again and again all the way through the book of Romans. So it's got to be about mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he's establishing what was was uh, given back in, in the book of Exodus, that Pharaoh was raised up and he was raised up for a purpose. Now let's look first of all at mercy, verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he he wills. Why is it mercy when it comes to salvation? Because it has to be. We cannot earn and we could never deserve salvation. He has established that again Uh, throughout this book but that's that's the message of the scripture itself so here's the bottom line his mercy saves us and it saves us from what we think we want and it gives us salvation think Ephesians uh, 2 for by grace you've been saved through faith And this not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So mercy and grace, they're not exactly the same, but you can think of them in that same category. So that's the mercy side. Few people have trouble with mercy. You may say, I I don't deserve it. Of course, that's the nature of mercy. That's the nature of grace, undeserved favor. But few have a problem with a a God who would show mercy and grace. But then further in verse 18, same verse. We like the mercy. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That sounds so harsh. Now again, let me caution you uh, against thinking of it in in some human way as, as it would have to be if we could harden someone else's heart. Here's what I'm afraid that some picture when it comes to salvation... Some people picture all of mankind, they're out there, and God is here, and they are all seeking God, wanting a relationship with him. And in in that picture, you can almost picture a line of people coming to him, and then we hear about hardening and then we get a picture like most of us have seen of these awful concentration camps where you know, people are coming through and, and somebody's going over there, over there, okay, over there. And all of them, all the people in, in that line in the concentration camp want not to be uh, killed. Some of them will be and some of them won't but they all have the same desire. And I'm afraid that's what some people picture with God. But I've got to tell you, it's the exact opposite of that. The Scripture says, no, it's not everybody moving toward God and wanting a relationship with him. And him picking them off and and hardening some hearts of people that really wanted him, it's nothing like that. He's explained it in the Scripture and even in Romans, Romans 3, none is righteous, no one seeks God. In John 3, Jesus uh, is called the light, and it says, man Hated the light. So, let me give you the real picture. There is no line of people seeking God. There is no group of people moving toward God. The only ones who seek God are are those who he already had mercy on. And he gave a new heart. So how does this hardening work? Well, what Paul doesn't take the time to explain about Pharaoh that is fleshed out in the book of Exodus is that he has already hardened his heart. It says that a number of times. It does say that God hardened his heart at times. But Pharaoh had already hardened his own heart. So here's the right picture. All mankind is out out here again. And they hate God. So much so that all of them are running as hard as they can the other direction, away from God, and some only stopping to shake their fist at him in hatred. And God lets some of them go the way they want to go. Romans 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God lets them have their way. No one in hell will ever be able to say, I came to God and he turned me away. They, no one will ever say, I wanted him and he hardened my heart. That won't be the case. But those in heaven will say, I didn't come to him and he drew me to himself. And that's us, if you are in Christ Jesus. So he goes on, Paul does, and knows what some will say, and that is, okay, so then it's God's fault. Why should we be accountable if it's God's fault? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if he hardens, then it's not. My fault, but his. Therefore, it's unjust for anyone to be punished. Again, that's a misunderstanding of mercy versus hardening. Here's what we need to know mercy is undeserved, hardening is absolutely deserved. We're getting what we want. John Stott put it this way. If anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. This antinomy or paradox, apparent paradox, contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve, but it is consistent with the Scripture, history, and experience. So he's saying, look, this is hard to grasp. This is... John Stott, a brilliant man. But it fits with the scripture and history and experience. So here's the bottom line. Some receive mercy. Some receive justice. But no one receives injustice. Did you hear that? Some receive mercy. Some receive justice. But no one receives injustice. Paul goes on relentlessly. And he basically says, man is not in the position of judging God. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? So, here he's saying, reminding them, look, you're, you're not really God. And so, who are you to even be asking these questions? Now, these questions are permitted. I mean, is that, is, is that verse there to say no questions allowed? No, God can handle questions. Let me give you a distinction, though, between uh, 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 different ways of of questioning God. We usually think of this around Christmas, but uh, think about uh, Zechariah and Mary. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, He's told, you're going to have a son. Told all about what his son would be. Zechariah says to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold... You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Here's why. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, that's one kind of questioning. It's a questioning of unbelief and even of challenge of God, like Paul's warning against in in Romans. Just a little bit later in that chapter, that was in Luke 1, a little bit later, Mary is told. Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? You know, that's not that different of a question, but God knows our hearts. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the... The child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. So God, in that case, graciously answers, answers her because it is a genuine cry to God for clarification, for understanding. It's not challenging. It's not judging God. There is a big difference. Now, Paul, back in Romans 9, goes on with, Another illustration, verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to uh, make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This is really where we've got to start. If God wants to make uh, some to be saved and give him glory and others who will not be saved, we really don't have a right to judge what will bring him glory because we don't know other than what he tells us. He says it's like the, the potter and the clay. Clay don't talk back to the potter. And that's what he's saying. The clay will never judge the potter. Now, that being said, he does give us a glimpse. And this is just, this is his grace and mercy that he would even deal with us and give us uh, these kinds of arguments and information. But we have a glimpse of his ways. Verse 22, "'What if God, desiring to show his wrath "'and to make known his power, "'has endured with much patience vessels of wrath "'prepared for destruction?' In other words, what if that was his way?' In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. In other words, if if all were vessels of mercy, would we even understand mercy? Would we? No. Which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. So again, some are going to say, well, that isn't, isn't fair for God to save some and not all or some might say it's not just now the most obvious answer to that one is when you say it's not just be careful you don't want justice if we all got justice no one would be saved. So he goes on. The question, and by the way, some sometimes people say that you people who believe in election, you got a big problem. And your problem is that it's not fair, or it's, it's not just, and, you know, what kind of a God is that? Well, look, this, this isn't just a problem for those that believe in election. If, if somehow, and there are, are many that try to uh, change the definition of election to make it more palatable, perhaps, and... and Many, many very sincere who are going to disagree with our perspective of election. But those who believe in election aren't the only ones that have to deal with that. Anybody who is a Christian and believes that God could save everyone, he has the power to save everyone, and he doesn't, they've got the same problem. Exactly the same problem. And we don't know the mind of God. We don't know particularly how all of this brings him glory. But we do, do know he is a God of mercy, and we're going to see more of that next week, how all of this, these doctrines come together and show absolutely, looking at it this way, shows us that there's no possibility that works is the way to heaven. So if God could save everyone and he doesn't, how can that be fair? We all have to grapple with that. He gives uh, two, a couple more illustrations that they could relate to. He uses Hosea and Isaiah. Hosea, as indeed he says to Hosea, and by the way, I think both of these he's saying, look, This is how God has always worked. This isn't something new. This isn't a doctrine from the Apostle Paul. This isn't a New Testament doctrine. This is God's way. And he reminds them by pointing out in Hosea and Isaiah things that they didn't seem to have problems with in terms of election. In Hosea, as indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. This one that absolutely cannot deserve to be loved, I'm going to love her. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. One of my favorite phrases He's saying, I'm, I'm not just gonna, I'm not gonna just marry, I'm gonna adopt into my family. This one who has no reason to be in any family. And by the way, that is absolutely unique to Christianity. Other religions are, are completely different at this point. Other religions are, are wanting. People who will make pilgrimages. People who will do things to themselves to earn their way to God. People who will strap on a bomb. Who will walk that razor's edge hoping against hope that their God will accept them at some point. It's only Christianity And this is offensive to other religions. It's only Christianity where God says, you're my family. You're my children. Jesus says, you're my brothers and sisters. And then he says in Isaiah, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. See, this is the way God has always worked down through history. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and been, become like Gomorrah. That's why it's mercy. Tis mercy all, immense and free. for God's people. D. James Kennedy has uh, an illustration in uh, one of his books, Truths That Transform." He says, think of it this way. Here are five people who are planning to hold up a bank. They're friends of mine. I find out about Their plan to hold up a bank, and I beg them not to do it. Finally, they push me out of the way, and they go to proceed with their plan. They start out, but I tackle one of the men and wrestle him to the ground. The other four go ahead, they rob the bank and someone is killed in that robbery. They are captured, convicted, and sentenced. The one man who was not involved in the robbery goes free. Now here's the question. Whose fault was it that the other men were convicted and died? This other man who is walking around free, can he say, because my heart is good, so good I'm a free man? The only reason that he is free is because of me, because I restrained him. So those, back to our question before us, those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. And so we see that salvation is all of grace and mercy from beginning to end. One final thing. If you have never come to Christ. And you say, well, you know what? I I desire mercy, but what if I'm not the elect? If you desire mercy, come to him. Because that desire is only because God is working in your heart. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. May Jesus Christ be praised. Thank you for this glorious doctrine And may that doctrine, for those who are trusting in Christ alone, give us a glimpse of what all was behind this and what immense mercy has been shown to us. And may it drive us to live a life of worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.